tonight I want to talk about um, the unity of compassion and wisdom. Or you could say wisdom needs compassion and compassion needs wisdom. Which luckily it happens naturally like that. So, just to talk about what, um, how wisdom needs compassion, so to speak. When we talk about, and sometimes even when we experience the the wisdom of, of emptiness, to say emptiness, meaning uh, empty of separate uh, intrinsic self, right? doesn't mean nothing's there, but there's no reliable separate anything to hold on to. We've talked about that quite a bit. The sense of not self, the sense of um, everything coming and going, and we say whatever thought occurs, awareness doesn't care. Whatever experience happens, just be aware of it. it. One isn't better than the other. And there can be, uh, at times, a beginning, uh, a sense of understanding this or experiencing it, but not fully. And so while um, a deep understanding of this or even moments is freeing, also there's often times, I'm sure many of you have experienced, I certainly have, when the idea of emptiness, of not-self, of awareness doesn't care, is actually uh, felt or experienced as rather um, unsettling, to say the least, uh, unattractive. I didn't really come here to find out everything's all the same and awareness doesn't care, and whatever I think doesn't matter, and whatever I do doesn't matter. And it's a little, um, you know, we can... It's not just all to move everything into some dull grayness. And people have used words to me like uh, uh, uncaring, alien, unattractive, inhuman. You get the drift. Um, But how sometimes even just when we experience that, it's kind of scary because there's no reference point. And so... From that is a kind of, you could say, it's an incomplete aspect of wisdom. It's true, all that, without the, without the um, judgments about uncaring and alien and inhuman and all of that. The sense that there's nothing to hold on to, that in a way, with, in the purity of mind, doesn't really matter what's arising, that's true. But if that's the only way we experience, it can uh, lead to a sense of, of disconnection, actually. A kind of a disillusionment. It verges uh, into the incomplete aspect without uh, the connectedness of compassion. Because it can sound as though emptiness and not self is a very uncaring, disconnected state or experience. This is from Nyoshal Kempo, who was a great Dzogchen master. The danger is that we hear too much too soon. We think we have understood shunyata, or emptiness, and we err on the side of the absolute, like everything's empty, nothing matters, in a nihilistic fashion, and we are obscured by concepts. Nagarjuna said, It is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material, concrete reality, but far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. Nagarjuna went on to say, the Buddhists say that emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. 
So you get a sense of the difference. The experience is one thing, the belief, the concept. It's all empty. It doesn't matter. He describes it back to Nyoshal Ken. Those who have fallen into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to reemerge since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, and nothing to do. Which we've been saying, right? There's nothing to do. But the knowing that, really from a deep understanding, is very different from a little bit knowing and the concept. It's all doesn't matter. There's nothing to do. You know, that kind of crazy wisdom of two people are fighting over a cat. Just cut it in half. It doesn't matter. That kind of, that kind of thing. You read about that. Nothing matters. So that's wisdom, but not complete wisdom because it doesn't have the compassion, it doesn't have the connection. The Tibetans have a lovely way of describing the natural nature of mind, of heart, as uh, threefold aspects, although all three are coming together, just because we have to talk about stuff. We split it up. So it has the qual- all mind, all experience has the quality of being empty empty of any separate self-existence, what I was just saying. And at the same time, in those moments of spontaneous knowing, natural awareness, the natural, clear, knowing quality of mind-heart is always available, always present, right? We've said that, the simple way we've been saying it, awareness is always accessible when you just remember. And the third aspect of that, that in the moment when there's the clear awareness, which is always accessible, knowing with the understanding of the empty nature, the third aspect is that the natural expression of mind, of heart, is that it is, the Tibetans use the phrase, ceaselessly responsive. Meaning that in any particular moment of experience, if a response is appropriate, that natural response will be that of compassion or metta, whichever is appropriate equanimity of the Brahma Viharas, but call it compassion for simplicity. That this is the natural and ceaselessly responsive nature, active nature, when the heart-mind of emptiness is called upon to respond. And when you put that all together, that's where we really get a sense of the depth of uh, the freedom the Buddha is talking about is this unity of wisdom and compassion. Now, at the same time, compassion needs wisdom or we so easily fall into kind of the vortex of despair, of, you know, we get overwhelmed, we take it all personally, we just can't be there, we, uh, you know all of that, or falling into righteous anger. So without the, the depth of wisdom, of emptiness, we can have, certainly cultivate compassion, of course, we don't have to be perfect in any of this, but the real depth of compassion needs both. This is from the Dalai Lama, who says, uh, without the unity of compassion and emptiness, we can fall into despair. Real compassion must be 
derived must arise from our insight into the emptiness of inherent self. This is where the vast meets the profound. Otherwise, though our compassion may be strong, it is likely to fall into the quality of hopelessness or even despair. Have you felt that sometimes? It feels like it's really compassion, but it so easily tips into the quality of hopelessness, of despair. And so our practice, where we're cultivating wisdom through the steadiness of mindfulness, we're also naturally developing compassion. And sometimes one seems more up, sometimes another seems more up, and sometimes they come together in a lovely way, but they keep on developing one and then the other, and then they come together. One expression of, of this that I really like is the statues of uh, Green Tara. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a Tibetan uh, a goddess of compassion. And so I have a little one at home that I really like because to me, it really um, it depicts this blending of, of, of wisdom and compassion. So the statue, she's sitting there uh, really in meditation, really at ease, totally relaxed, at ease, clearly in meditation, but the eyes are a little bit open. So not this sense of complete pullback from the world. And I'm sure if you've ever seen the green Tara icon, you know that one of the feet is resting, the, like, resting up like that on a lotus petal, like ready to get up if action is called for. At that moment, action isn't called for. So there's the deep serenity of wisdom, of meditation, but always, not like, oh my God, I got to do something. No, that's our, that's not it. Total serenity, but as soon as the appropriate action is called for, it naturally arises. Doing the obvious, as I heard one teacher say, not, you know, holding oneself in readiness. It's the natural response of wisdom. Nyoshal Ken again. Someone who realizes that all phenomena are empty and who realizes or recognizes the non-existence of self will naturally have spontaneous compassion for sentient beings who do not realize this and so continue to suffer through delusion and clinging. And you don't have to like think, oh, that's somewhere way down the road, impossible for me. Again, remember, everything is only moments, only this moment. To me, that's one of the most freeing teachings in my practice, because when I find my mind thinking, well, how can I ever be that compassionate? I was just like having these horrible thoughts about this other person yesterday, you know. Right now, right now is all we have to work with. That's a huge relief and it makes everything possible. So remember, you don't have to remember, but last week when I was talking about the, uh, how working to, to purify the habits of heart and mind, and I think, I think I suggested noticing moments in your own experience when the heart mind is pure, when it's not being uh, distorted by greed, hatred, delusion. I don't know another time I said when there's not a sense of self. Notice those moments. And so think back, if you can think of one, and as I said, they're just simple moments when you're really present and awake, just with this moment, just as it is, if someone was describing 
in an inner, just, just being totally present with what is, there's no problem in that moment, is there? We can't imagine why there would ever be a problem again. We don't have to wait long, but <laughs> in that moment, right, of the pure heart and mind, whatever it is, whether it's just walking, seeing the leaves, drinking tea, just standing, there's just that purity, that simple total presence, not thinking of me or other. In that moment, could you imagine if there was some being in front of you having trouble that you would act from aversion or cruelty? The natural response of compassion would just naturally spring up, wouldn't it? Can you imagine doing anything harmful or cruel from that space? It just, it doesn't occur in that moment. And so in terms of some little chipmunk needed help, you may not know, you may not have the, uh, the information of what would be the most supportive, helpful thing to do. So we don't always have omniscient wisdom. But in that sense of the wisdom of emptiness, the wisdom of not about me and other, the movement to compassionate action would just naturally arise. You wouldn't have to think about it at all. Later, you could think about and analyze and beat yourself up when you weren't in such a pure space anymore. But at that time, it's just the natural way that the mind of wisdom and compassion functions. And so, wisdom needs compassion, but the compassion also needs wisdom because we don't have the big picture. And so even when we're... um, not really taken over by greed or confusion, but just a little bit in the sense of I, even if we're meaning well to do well, our our vision, what we can see is going to be narrowed and limited in that me and other space, if you know it. I want to do something good for the environment, but somehow it's always coming from me. We just can't see, instead of me and other, the wisdom shifts it to we. And out of that we, a more appropriate, compassionate action can come. I'll give you a very simple example, not even compassion, but just that shift out of me to we that lets one see the situation in a more holistic way. I mean, this is such a simple example. I was, um, some years ago when I was, I was on retreat in um, Shui Min Meditation Center in Burma, a lot of people there and I was doing some walking meditation, so there's not, it's not so orderly, you could say, as here. And there's not a special walking rooms, there's just places outside to walk. Some, some uh, uh, just kind of like a narrow walkway, some um, verandas outside of the meditation hall, some wa- anywhere there is outside you can walk. And so... I was walking, and so here, you know, if we start walking in one way, we assume everyone else will walk in the same direction, you know, and we're all very tidy about it. God forbid someone should go crosswise. (laughs) But there, it's just kind of whatever, you know? And so I had my little space, I was walking back and forth, and people are ambling this way and ambling that way and coming in here and coming right towards me, and I'm, you know, you can imagine. Well, maybe not, but... So no one walked into me, but I'm, I was in a decent open space. I'm like, okay, well, let's all try to walk for the well-being of all. I mean, I wasn't really aversive, but it was that sense of me trying to coordinate it, you know. So there was this. <laughs> 
but psychically, right? I mean, I wasn't really talking to anybody, but psychically. <laughs> we're just walking here. We're just all walking together, one big mishmash. But then I kind of, you know, something let go, which, as we know, can't be an act of will. Something let go, and I quit seeing it from this perspective and how all these people are. I said, actually, it's working. Nobody's actually walking into anybody here. It's working. I just walk back and forth, and someone seems to be walking. Well, they are walking right directly towards me. (laughs) That's true. But when we get to the point, before the point of contact, one of us turns. Okay, what's the big problem? One of us turns. Maybe it's me, maybe it's them. But someone turns. (laughs) Keep on walking. This is like, actually, there was no problem. And I was there for weeks, and it was always thus, you know? And it's like, as soon as it wasn't that sense of me having to, like, take care of it for all of us, but especially for me, but just seeing the big picture, oh, it works. Maybe they move, maybe I move. One of us moves in the big we, and it all works out. Oh, see, it's simple, but it makes a huge difference. That's, in a little way, the, the, the way that compassionate response and clear seeing can arise when all of our, so much of our energy isn't like caught up in this relentless, obsessive self-referencing. So without wisdom, we can have, you know, wonderful ideas of compassion and act in great compassionate ways, but it doesn't have the real depth, the staying power, because it's not coming from the deep wisdom of uh, not me and other, but us, so to speak, and us includes everything in that way. But when that obsessive self-referencing is just a little bit released, so much energy is available for life, for awareness, for appropriate response, for compassion. And that's where it, how it naturally shows up, which is a nice thing. So then in a way, the question of compassion, really, compassion with wisdom, the one that comes up for me, somehow I feel, sometimes feel like this has been one of, oh, there's quite a few koans in practice. You've probably noticed how a lot of spiritual practice is really paradoxical. You know, we say one thing's true and then the exact opposite is true and they're both true and you can't figure it out, but you somehow have to understand it, right? So it's like that with this. But for me, this this balance, this dance of emptiness and compassionate action, cultivating wisdom to be able to really uh, act in wise and compassionate ways from a depth, not just from an idea, and not then just getting into the wisdom that's so uh, serene and removed. I feel like a lot of my life is kind of back and forth, back and forth, trying to, yeah, try to figure it out, which is, of course, hopeless, but dancing back and forth between those two, making teensy, teensy little, teensy, teensy little understandings, and then, oh, I didn't understand anything, you know, and starting over goes like that. But how the question, with the depth of wisdom and compassion, how do we continue to open our hearts, our minds, in this complex world of beauty and suffering? And these days, you know, it's hard enough, I find, to find the courage not just the willpower courage, but the courage of the tenderness of wisdom, of compassion, to keep opening in the face of even our own overwhelming suffering, 
Each of us, at times, experiences suffering. That, at times, is overwhelming. Just to open to our own. And then the way the information world is these days is all the people we know, all the people we care for, our family and friends, and then just to be able to be present in the face of all of their suffering. And then there's the media. And just one day of listening to the news can, you know, some days one can be somewhat present. Some days it's, it's more than the heart can take in and it shuts down. At least that's my experience. It's like overwhelming amount of information. So how do we continue to find the, the wisdom and the courage to open and the courage mm, to be present? And if we respond, not to go to the response of fear, of aggression, of hatred, of self-righteous anger, if we even have enough wisdom to have the choice. How not to um, fall into and kind of wallow in the internal space of despair or feeling, as the Dalai Lama said, feel, can feel hopeless. There's no way I can open to this, so forget it. You know, it's like all or nothing. Now, somehow, I notice in talking to different people, and I have the same thing myself, uh, kind of tendency of, you know, we either have to, we have to do it all, and we have to do it all right now. And if we're not doing it completely perfectly, we're hopeless failures. I don't know if that relates to anybody, but I've certainly picked up that little tinge once in a while in interviews. And so it's like this, I should be able to open to all the suffering in the world right now, and when my heart shuts down, it shows what a selfish, deluded person I am. Right? Those are our two, you know, alternate choices. Uh, Not really so helpful. But to see that we really, um, it's kind of like the inner reflects the outer. We need both. We need both. And that's why we have this practice. There's something I read from Martin Luther King one time, just a short line, where he said, "Um, nonviolence means we not only refuse to shoot a person, but we refuse to hate them. And I love that because to me it gives the sense, you know, on the, the, it's not superficial, it's already quite profound that we refuse to shoot a person, we refuse to hurt a person with our actions. That's already wonderful. I mean, if that could just go in the world, that would be fantastic. But on the depth of all of our actions, our heart and mind really transforming, purifying, so that we're like the green Tara, the spontaneous response in a moment is wisdom and compassion. Then the purification, the practice, the looking at suffering has to really keep coming in on a deeper and deeper level, deeper into our own experience, so that the transformation is really, not only do we refuse to shoot, we refuse to hate and that we have enough awareness, enough self-knowledge, enough mindfulness to actually notice a moment when we have a choice. No, I'm not going to go to hatred now. And we all know there's plenty of times we don't have that choice, but that's why we're practicing. To even see that choice is possible. To see that there's another way and to learn to trust that. So how does this happen? Oh, I wanted to read this from the Dalai Lama. Uh, In terms of opening to so much suffering without falling into despair, 
I read one time, and I don't have the exact quotation, I just remember it because it went in, so this is a complete paraphrase, this isn't his words. But it was describing, or the person interviewing him was describing how, as I'm sure you know, he is the person who receives the history, so many suffering histories of so many people, right? Any Tibetan refugee who manages, especially in the past, to escape from Tibet, could get to the Dalai Lama and would tell their story. So it's, you know, endless histories of um, loss and murder and losing one's family and nunneries and monasteries destroyed and imprisonment and torture. I mean, endless, just one or two. If I read one or two, it's like, oh my God, you know, how can you live after that? How can you take it in? And he'll be there, right? Totally present for each person who comes. And so, and this is something uh, I read about him, no matter who it is, that whoever he's talking to, he's so present, you know, all of him is there. Like you're the most important, only person in the world at that point. Total presence, which is really an act of love, isn't it? An act of compassion. So he'll be there hearing this history, really in it, often weeping, really completely empathetic, as long as it's there. Then when that person leaves and the next thing happens, he's totally there in the next thing. He could be with another person and they're laughing and joking, or he's going to another teaching in a completely other space. And it's this sense of not because he didn't care that that was possible, but because he's so present, just in this moment, empathetic, crying, no resistance. And so the next moment is just as total and there's not any residue. So it's not how can I open to all of it? I can't. That's exactly it. I can't. I is somehow the resistance, the limit. You know, we do the best we can. But when there's no I, it's just kind of passing through. So he's really there, really empathetic, completely compassionate. And with the next person, equally, even that might be a joking, happy moment. Empty of separate self, and yet totally connected and empathetic in the experience. The union of emptiness and compassion as it shows up in a person's activity. So compassion is sometimes defined as the quivering of the heart. I like that because it actually feels like that kind of. The quivering of the heart in connection with uh, pain or suffering, our own or another's, kind of the tender heart. When um, Dalai Lama or Tibetans talk about it, they talk about it as bodhicitta, which is kind of the most noble aspect of compassion, the noble or awakened heart, which is described as the, um, the great motivation to cultivate compassion and awakening the noble heart in our heart and mind in order to bring all beings to awakening. So that's a vast aspiration of compassion. But just to even talk about bodhicitta as the noble heart, as the tender heart, this quivering of our heart in response to suffering, kinship with beings. So the Dalai Lama saying that, uh, of course, cultivation of this is possible. How does it develop? He says, you can guess, maybe you can guess from deep insight into what suffering is and guess how we develop that insight. 
by focusing being really present, he says, with our own experience of suffering. We don't have to have some giant, amazing, you know, experience. We all experience plenty of suffering and happiness, as Winnie was reminding us last night. (laughs) We got there in a circuitous way. But um, the suffering that we experience is exactly where we start to learn in a cellular way compassion. As we learn how to open into, to meet our own suffering, whatever form, with this tenderness of heart. And this is the Dalai Lama. He says that compassion then begins to strengthen, becomes a sense of empathy, connectedness with other beings. And this is like, not like an intellectual thing that we should try and make this happen because then it just becomes a pushing some idea. So don't worry about it or push for it, but notice because it really does happen that way. Sometimes people think, well, my suffering isn't, you know, so much compared to, and they'll name how much other people are suffering. And there's always people going through a lot more horrendous stuff than we are, even though there's plenty of people here going through horrendous stuff. But that's a way of saying, well, mine is really nothing. I don't have the right to even, you know, worry about this or even meet it as suffering because it's so nothing. That's a pushing away. That's a denial. That's a making it personal and, you know, sidestepping the whole issue. It doesn't matter what it is. Any kind of suffering that we open to with this tender heart, with this quality of mindful awareness, non-judging, totally present, it can really move into this empathy, into this sense of um, connectedness and expression of, my particular suffering becomes the suffering of all beings. Pema Chodron quotes Stephen Levine, writing of a woman who was dying in terrible pain and feeling overwhelming bitterness. At the point at which she felt that she could not bear the suffering and the resentment any longer, she unexpectedly began to experience the pain of others. A starving mother in Ethiopia, a runaway teenager dying of an overdose in a dirty flat, a man crushed by a landslide and dying alone by the banks of a river. She said she understood that it was not her pain, it was the pain of all beings. It wasn't just her life, it was life itself. And Pema Chodron says, we awaken this bodhicitta this tenderness for life, when we can no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. In the words of the 16th Karmapa, you take it all in. You let the pain of the world touch your heart and it turns into compassion. Again, this happens by itself. And we don't have to be like expert at it. But this is why, again, I think when he said this last night, that this is why the difficult times in retreat are so important. They're so important. I've talked about in terms of purification, but this is really how we meet presently arising experience is the point of purification. 
what's arising in this moment? And someone said, this shouldn't be happening. You know, we always think this shouldn't be happening. But that doesn't make any sense because it is happening. And if it is happening, it should be happening because all the conditions have come together such that this moment is like this. It can't be any different, you know? So, but how the mind-heart of awareness meets this moment is the place where compassion and wisdom are cultivated. How we meet this presently arising moment is the arising when we meet it with, with clear mindful awareness is the arising of the compassionate intention. The wise intention, as Winnie talked about, just to meet what's happening with kind awareness. It's not our... Mm, Certainly in the world, it may not be the main go-to modality. The Dalai Lama says, um, someone asked him about what looks like a lack of compassion in human society. And he said, well, maybe we just pay less attention to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less. Whereas in some sense, we fully embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state, fueling it or reinforcing it. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and reinforcement to compassion and caring, they would definitely be stronger. And so, you know, that's what we're practicing. But have you noticed that sometimes when you're really in a difficult spot, people will say, all of a sudden, metta or compassion arises, like, whoa, where'd that come from? Who was that? And that's like lovely to notice. But do you notice how other times when we're tired or it's happening again, the go-to thing is more a sense of aversion or judgment. Once, this is just an, like a, a little story that exemplifies it. I was uh, staying with a friend in an ashram in southern India, near Tir- in Tirvanamalai, but it wasn't Ramana ashram. It was a little smaller one. And... Um, in the middle of the night, like one or two in the morning, we started hearing these incredible whacks. I can't even do it. it was so loud. Whack, whack, you know, just like some really loud, hard thing hitting the floor. And this went on for the rest of the night. And um, it's just, we got up in the morning and we were walking out and we could see uh, in a room, another like kind of the main center room in the ashram, there is like a little bed, one of those... Uh, one of those what are your, charpoy beds, and an old Swami was sitting on the bed, really old in the, you know, long beard and in the, the, his uh, kind of orange outfit, not that kind, more orange kind of outfit. And he was sitting on the edge of the bed with this long, thick rope that it looked like he'd made himself out of, out of tying all kinds of rags together. He must have taken him years to get that many rags. So this thick rope about this long, and he was just sitting there on his bed, with all his strength just flapping it on the floor over. And he'd been doing this for hours by this point. Wow, wow, wow. So we asked him, what is he doing? And we couldn't ask him, he was too engrossed. He said, what <laughs> is he doing? He said, oh, he's keeping, the, he's keeping the demons away. He's keeping the hindrances away. He's getting rid of them. I think, isn't that what we do? Wow. Whap, whap, get rid of this ill will, get rid of this sleepiness, get rid of this doubt. Whap, whap. That's not really the most useful go-to way. <laughs> Doesn't really work, and it's exhausting. 
It takes huge energy, huge energy to be fighting with all our experience. Payment Children gives another lovely image. I like it a lot. She, uh, you get it right. She says she compares our heart, our tender heart and mind to one of these uh, creatures called a sea anemone. Do you know what that is? It's a, a some, yes, uh, it's a little creature that lives in the sea and it's very soft center. So it closes around itself to protect itself. So she says, she's, you know, we think, I have enough suffering of my own, I can't let in other people's suffering, or I can't even let in my own suffering, you know? So we close around to protect ourselves. And she says, with that, you know, we think we're protecting ourselves, but really when we close off to anything, we're also closing off to ourselves. Notice that when we can't be with some aspect of our own suffering, do you notice We don't get to be with the beauty either. We're just disconnected, you know, until we figure out what's going on. And so I love that image, instead of a judgment, it's like, oh, it's a sea anemone closing down around the soft center. But then we see that's actually what shuts us off. And we start to learn, and this is what we're learning through practice, that the place of strength and wisdom and courage that actually gives of the understanding and the natural response of compassion is the softness and the wisdom that actually lets us just be with that tender heart of whatever it is that's occurring. We don't have to take on the whole world. Just starting with our own experience here, whatever it is that's going on in your practice. So that's why these periods are so important the difficult times, not just to like get through and think, okay, they're important and I'm through it, thank God, we're on to the next thing. You'll look back, I'm pretty sure, I can't say for everyone, but I know for me, times that I've had retreats that were really difficult, where you think, oh my God, you know, you come staggering out of it. None of you here will come staggering out. You'll all come out floating on clouds of bliss. But (laughs) once in a while, I've come kind of, oh my God, that was so hard. What was that about? But you find out later, it was about so much. Those are the retreats that so much was learned for me in my experience. The kind of learning that really makes the mind and heart stronger, more courageous, it lets go of a lot of confusion through being with the suffering, seeing how it's created, how the mindfulness and compassion being with it, it dissipates. And then it comes up again and we're like, oh no, I saw it once, that was enough. No, it wasn't. 10 million times will be enough. And again, and again, and again. And we think, oh my God. But Instead of that, notice each moment. It's a deepening of the potential for this anemone to open and for that moment of meeting it with just simple mindfulness, just simple acceptance, not in order for anything, not to make it go away, not to have a big aha moment, but just because this is the moment that life is presenting right now. There is no other moment of life than this one right now. And our choice is to shut down to it or to, as best we can, meet it with kind awareness and compassion. We don't always have that choice, but that's okay. Then we notice we're shut down. That's a new moment that we have an opportunity to meet again. But there's ever only this moment. And so 
It's so important. We can't skip this part. (laughs) It's like we want to cultivate compassion by really understanding it. But let's jump over this horrible part here in the middle where we have to keep on swimming back in this stuff. And it's not even like sometimes. Sometimes it's really intense. Sometimes it's like, this is such a stupid thing. Like when I talked about swallowing the other day, you know. This seems like a stupid thing, but the amount of suffering could be huge. Don't denigrate it. Don't push it away. Really meet it. Shapkar, who was a really amazing Tibetan yogi from the early 1800s. There's a, he wrote an autobiography of Shapkar. It's a huge book, but mostly in poetry. But he's a really amazing yogi. This is just one line of his. He says, meditating without compassion is simply to inflict hardship on yourself. I think that's worth remembering. (laughs) I'll say it again. Meditating without compassion is simply to inflict hardship on yourself. And there's enough of that. So we can't skip this part because this is really where the depth of wisdom of emptiness meets the depth of compassion and compassion moves from uh, an intellectual idea which is useful, it can real, that can guide us to do wholesome actions, but it moves from intellectual to really a cellular depth of wisdom, like the green Tara. Because without that, there's, I know there's times I want to do a compassionate thing, but if it's not really from myself, if I'm still caught up in me or in fear or protection or whatever, then if it comes to the crunch, when things get hard, sometimes compassion's not what comes out. We're back with the old Swami hitting ourselves with a rope or someone else, you know, in the crunch. So it has to really be like a cellular, the way I think it, understanding, not just an idea. And then it's not a compassion and wisdom of emptiness is not about not acting, incredible response, incredible courageous response and proactive um, actions are possible when it's really moving from this depth of transformation of heart and mind that, you know, even faced with, even faced with violence and possible death that the coming from compassion and wisdom is still accessible. Um, just an example. Back to, to Martin Luther King, you not only refuse to shoot a person, you refuse to hate a person. A few months ago, I guess it was a few months ago, I saw on TV a, a special on PBS. It was a, a commemoration of uh, from a, a period from the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s. This was a period from the Freedom Rides in, in 1961. And for those of you who aren't American, and also probably a lot younger than that, um, at that period... And in 1960, 1961, some, a, a group of college, young college students, African-American college students from a divinity school in Nashville uh, had formed a group that they called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And they were really um, very active in the civil rights movement. And they thought up and began, um, maybe not begin it, but they're the ones who carried out what's called, what's the, called the Freedom Rides, which was at that time buses that went interstate um, were supposed to be not allowed to be segregated. But in certain states in the South, they, they enforced segregation and they had separate waiting rooms and the bus stops and all. And this was against the law, but the country wasn't enforcing the law. 
So they came up with the idea of having these freedom rides, or just having groups of their students, um, the African-American students, but also white people from all over, and just riding together on the buses, the normal buses, Greyhound Trailways, getting off at the stops and just going in the waiting rooms together. That was it, you know, that's all they were doing. And unbelievable violence came, in, especially uh, in, in Alabama and Mississippi. So that's a whole long story. But the, the point I want to make, I saw... Um, it was an, an hour going through it, and I'd read a lot about it, but it had some videos of some of the people and then interview, interviews with some of the people when they made this video, which I think must have been just a few years ago because one of the people I know is dead now. Um, so at this point, the video was, was um, just this one example I want to give. They were interviewing a man, um, John Siegenthaler was his name, who was... Um, he was a special assistant to Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general. John, JFK was the president, and Robert Kennedy was the attorney general. And so that's the head legal person in the country. So it was really his responsibility to first be enforcing the law, but also to be protecting these, these freedom riders because they were being subjected to horrific violence. So he sent John Siegenthaler um, down into um, Montgomery. Was it Montgomery? I, have, I, I get which town, confused. Well, he went down to talk to the, the governor of Alabama to get him, who wouldn't even talk to him for a while, to get him to um, protect the people. And he also, in this one particular incident, he managed that the incident came to an end. Those freedom riders were finished. And so John Siegenthaler was thinking, this was, he was talking now, he's thinking, Good. He thought, I thought I really did something. I managed to get this particular incident done. I got the governor to agree to do something. I was feeling kind of proud of myself, you know. And he hadn't even, you know, that's all he'd done. But then he hears from the people, the, the young students in, in Nashville, that they're sending more. They're sending more. And he's like, what? What's the matter with them? I just managed to cool it out, and they're sending more people? And, you know, this is crazy, you know. And he just... He, so he got on the phone, and who he was talking to was this uh, amazing young woman named Diane Nash, who was part of this group, who was the, um, she, they, were, they were using her as the organizer. So she wasn't doing the ride, she would stay in Nashville, and she talked to everybody on the phone, and she's talking to Robert Kennedy, and she's talking, and she's organizing the whole thing. And if you read anything, she just seems to be the most amazing person. So, John, first I need to read from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, just a couple brief um, things from the Statement of Purpose, because this is like the depth that they're coming from. This is written by James Lawson, who was, who was training them in nonviolence. He was a um, Christian minister, and he's still alive, one of the main proponents of nonviolence. So he says, um, the philosophical or religious ideal of nonviolence is the foundation of our purpose and the manner of our action. Nonviolence, as it grows from Judaic Christian traditions, seeks a social order of justice permeated by love. Through nonviolence, courage displaces fear. Love transforms hate. Love is the central motif of nonviolence. Love is the force by which God binds man to himself and man to man. Okay, this is very Christian language. Such love goes to the extreme. It remains loving and forgiving 
even in the midst of hostility, by appealing to conscience and standing on the moral nature of human existence, nonviolence nurtures the atmosphere in which reconciliation and justice become actual possibilities. So these kids, they're kids, they're 19, 20, 21 year old, years old, have been training, and they're all in a Christian divinity school, they've been training in this depth of nonviolent based in love and forgiveness in the face of violence. They've been training in depth in this, and it also meshes with their Christian faith. So it's not just an idea. So they're going into this incredible violent scenarios. So they're sending more people on the bus. And so John Siegenthaler gets on the phone to Diane Nash, and he's thinking really, well, here's this young girl. I, I just have to get her to understand reality. So he's saying, I was trying to get her to call him off and I was getting more and more frustrated. And he said, I said to her, don't you get it? Don't you understand? Somebody might even be killed. And he said, she said, she said, you must understand. At night before leaving, we each made out our last will and testament. Yes, we know someone will be killed, but we cannot let the power of nonviolent protest be stopped by violence. So we must continue. And he was, this is like 50 years later, he was in awe even then. He said, I really, really learned from this young woman. And then the last thing was that he said, he was talking to Robert Kennedy and Robert Kennedy said to him, I was just on the phone with Diane Nash. Who is Diane Nash? (laughs) She's like this amazing person. So that's a huge depth, right? It's possible. I mean, that's one of the more inspiring um, examples I know in this country. But that's like on the cellular level. That's how we're working here, you know, on that level. But it doesn't mean that we always have to act. Just to show you that compassionate action and wisdom is not about passivity at all. But it also doesn't, compassion doesn't mean that action is necessary because often action isn't possible. In a way, I'd say, for me, the essence of compassion, where it begins, is with connection. So really, that's the the wisdom of the mindfulness that just connects with our own experience. The simple power of bearing witness, bearing witness to our own experience, allows us to be courageous and able to be with bearing witness with another. James Baldwin wrote once, an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. And I often think that about ourselves, you know, when we're feeling like we're our own enemies and we're fighting against our own experience, like, this is just a story we haven't heard. Can we just listen into our own experience? Listening is an act of love, an act of presence, of bearing witness. And another simple example of how just the willingness to turn our attention to something openly can just be the wellspring of compassion in a very simple way in our life. And how the, the disconnect is what doesn't allow compassion. It's very simple, but I was listening to the radio once a couple of years ago. Um, and you know how you're listening, there's all these stories and you kind of go, oh... It was a story about a man, they were interviewing a man who was a BBC war correspondent, so he's used to talking on the radio, who was um, 
talking about a disease called Huntington's disease, which is a deterioration of the nerves that is genetic. It goes from father to son, and it hits in middle age. His father had died of it, and his elder brother had died of it. It hits in middle age, and you only live a few years. All the nerves deteriorate, and you die. There's nothing they could really do. So he was talking about this. His father and brother had both died of it. He so far hadn't come down with it, but he was just like a, at the age when his brother got it. And it's the kind of story, you know, how you could be listening and, oh, yeah, that's a shame. You know, you mean it, but yeah, sort of that's a shame, one to the next, and, oh, that's the, too bad. And I was doing that, but then somehow I just, whatever, I just put down my breakfast and was listening. No big deal, but I just turned my full attention to it and just listened. And he's just talking about how, oh, you know, every day, it's very matter-of-fact. You just think, what must that be like? He says, every day when I'm walking to the store to get the newspaper, he lived in, in London, I'm thinking, is this going to be the day when my, my leg just starts to tremble a little bit? Is this going to be the day when I notice the first symptom, knowing pretty well that the trajectory would be having seen it in his father and his brother? And I thought, you know, all it took, just it so went in, just in a way of, oh, the, the compassion, like the empathy of, you know, what must that be like? And then the big picture, of course, that's true for all of us. He just had a more specific thing that he was wondering about. But in a way, that does move to all of us. And it's not some big deal, some big changing my world, but just that willingness to connect. That's how the compassion arises. And without the connection, that disconnect is where atrocities are possible. I just read this most, I just read it yesterday, it's like horrible quotation from Stalin where he said, um, the death of one person is a tragedy. The death of a million people is a statistic. And that's, you know, this is the man who had like 20 million people sent to the gulag and killed. But I thought, you know, it's true. Why sometimes it's so important to, to tell stories to get, you know, if you get a sense of one image, like that guy with Huntington's, and I can, oh, that's what it must be like for those people. You might get really involved with people with that particular disease. We kind of need an immediate connection to get a sense of it. So, you know, we're not going to be perfect. We're not perfect in wisdom. We're not perfect in compassion. But the willingness to keep noticing, the willingness to just keep on reconnecting, to keep on cultivating, to keep on purifying. It's never going to be perfect. This world, in my experience, life is so complex. Things are really ambiguous. Even with the best of our intentions and compassion, situations are complex. We often don't know what's the most useful, helpful thing to do. Can we be with that, not be frozen, still act? And if we do the thing that doesn't lead to the, uh, the result we thought would happen, can we meet that with compassion and equanimity? A simple example, not simple, but, you know, if you've ever had to be a medical proxy for someone, which I've been for both my parents and my sister, it's extremely complex. You can sit down with a person and go through every possible idea you could think of of what could happen and what they want. 
Guaranteed, what really happens won't be on that list because it'll be some different combination of things. And so you make, you know, one makes the best decision one can from compassion and from wisdom. You really don't know. Making this decision to uh, do a procedure that could really um, heal for some years and it turns out that it just prolongs agony for two weeks and they die. Or you'd make a decision not to do a procedure and the person dies and you never know what would have happened otherwise. That's how life is. We don't know what would happen the other way. Can we just meet that ambiguity with the most wisdom, the most compassion we have? We're not in control. We keep saying that, hey, we're really not in control. That makes it more possible. I'm more willing to work. Sister Chan Kong, who is the nun who's sort of like the, the closest sidekick of Thich Nhat Hanh. She wrote um, some years ago uh, uh, an autobiography. And uh, she talks in it, she's very committed to social action, very committed to mindfulness and compassion. So at this point, um, she and Thich Nhat Hanh <coughs> had um, been not allowed back into Vietnam during the Vietnamese war because they wouldn't take sides and so both sides didn't trust them, kicked them out. Anyway, at this point, after the war, the Vietnamese government was um, at that time arresting a lot of monks and nuns and artists. And uh, Sister Chan Kong was quite involved in a a letter-writing campaign. Whenever she'd hear one was arrested, she'd write letters to the government. But this is from her. Every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry and I knew I had to do walking meditation. Is that what you do when you feel angry? (laughs) I have to tell them what's wrong. No, she said I needed a walking meditation. Sometimes I would walk several hours in order to regain my calm. Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to relax my heartbeat, knowing how unfairly the authorities have acted. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm and people found it easier to listen, easier to to cooperate. I just love that. And this is from a woman who'd been, you know, she's a Buddhist nun and practicing really hard, hard course since she was 16. Just like, what's the reality of it? I'm angry. I choose not to act from anger, but I choose to act. So my job is to meet my own suffering here, this anger with wisdom and compassion. And when the wise intention is available, then I can act with wisdom. So we just dedicate our lives. You know, it's the work of our whole lives. It's not about ever getting perfect. And uh, something Ajahn Sumedho I, I read years ago, where he said, you know, the ordinary suffering of our lives, we don't need special suffering. The ordinary circumstances of our lives are enough to get enlightened with. The ordinary circumstances of life are all we need to teach us wisdom and compassion. It's everywhere we look. We don't have to go looking for anything special. And I know for me, I find when sometimes my own particular story seems to be taking over my mind, Just keep on practicing with it. Even something as simple as being hungry, there's a way at some point you'd be with it. It can turn into empathy. Wow, this is so nothing. And there's people who go to bed every night without food. You can 
turn that against yourself or you can turn that into compassion and help us connect with what's going on in the world. Or other times when I feel like I'm just um, too overwhelmed in some, some particular story of my own, so I, you know, the mindfulness isn't strong enough to be there and I turn the attention to seeing, to hearing, to outward. But also the messages of uh, wisdom and compassion are coming at us from everywhere, you know. The Four Noble Truths are speaking to us everywhere. Just the animals and nature and the things in the woods and snakes dying on the roads and the little chipmunks storing their uh, nuts. And when you hear a siren going, whenever I hear a siren, I try and just think, you know, it's usually it's a fire or it's an ambulance and somebody's life is really changing right now. Don't know how. I just, I don't always remember to do it, but I just try to let that in, you know, that... We are the world, and the world is us. We don't have to look for anything special. You know, all we have is this moment, this moment, and it's enough. It's enough. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's happening. How we meet it is the cultivation of wisdom and compassion. So I just want to end with this little line from Tema Chodron. Talking about bodhicitta. At the relative level... Our noble heart is felt as kinship with all beings. At the absolute level, we experience it as groundlessness or open space. Thank you for listening. We'll just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.